Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Tonight we are here for Matthew Zabruder. First of all, that's an awesome picture, people. Get the book so you can own a picture of, of Matthew Zippert. It's an awesome picture. He's the author of four collections of poetry. His poetry, essays, and translations have appeared in publications including The New Yorker, Paris Review, Tin House, and The Believer, an associate professor in the St. Mary's College of California MFA program and English department. He's also editor-at-large at Wave Books, and from 2016 to 17 was the editor of the poetry page of the New York Times Magazine. He lives in Oakland, California with his wife and son. Um, he'll be interviewed by David Ewan, um, a literary fixture here in Los Angeles, uh, who um, was a book editor for the LA Times for many years and winner of the Guggenheim. And so we're very happy to have them both. Thank you. Hi. Turn up. Thank you. Okay. Um, so Matthew is going to read for a little bit, and then we will chat for a little bit, and then we will expect you all to chat for a little bit with Matthew, and then he'll sign books. The usual drill. Um, really happy to see all these people here for, for poetry. All right. Um, so without further ado, Matthew, you want to? Yeah. Take Thanks, it. everybody, for being here. It's great to see so many familiar, like friendly faces, people I love and respect so much are here and um, also new new people too. Hey Ruth. Yeah, there's some real there's a lot of real poets in this audience. It's a little scary. Um, but we'll be okay. Um, yeah, so thanks for coming out and thanks to Skylight and thanks to David, my old friend and brilliant writer and I can't think of a better person to chat with about this stuff. Um, we'll see how you feel after the chat. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, and Skylight's best. This roof kills me. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What was it? What was it? We'll never know. Um, so anyway, this is a book um, that I started writing or thinking about writing a long time ago, and some people in this room have heard me talk about it a lot along the way, and um, it kind of came out of a desire like to really engage with the questions people have about poetry um, you know, at any level, and I think a lot of it comes down to a question of why poets do what they do, you know, what drives them to search for what they're searching for in their poems. And I really wanted to address that in this book in as a direct way as possible. And so it began out of that desire, but became uh, personal too. Um, it became sort of a story in a way, or, or re-understanding my own story of how I'd started writing poetry. I, I began writing poetry uh, a little bit later in my life than some other people did in my 20s. And it was kind of a surprise when I started writing poems. I didn't expect it and it changed everything for me. And so that, that story is in here too. And um, yeah, and then it ended up being a lot about my dad, which was peculiar. I was telling David this story yesterday that, um, that uh, when I uh, sent the book to my editor, a, a sort of relatively late draft of the book, she sent it back and she said, oh, it's, it's great, you know, here are 900 changes, but it's great. And, uh, and, um, and, and I really think you get the three key aspects of the book, you know, really clearly expressed. And I was like, three key aspects, what are those? You know, I was dying to know what she meant. And so, yeah, I told David this yesterday and I was one of it, you know, it's like, why, you know, what, what, what is a poem? You know, why do people do it? That stuff I was talking about before. And then your own personal story being a poet. And then, uh, you know, all that stuff about your dad. It's like my dad. What are you talking about? Like I know I, I thought I mentioned him a few times in the book, but I didn't realize. And then it turns out that, and I said this yesterday, that I that I went, you know, with a my, with a document and I did a search for like dad, <laughs> you know, father. And I was like, oh my god, like ninety results, you know. So it turns out that I had written a lot about my father who passed away about ten years ago, and he was a great guy, but didn't really get what I did. 
I'm sure a lot of us writers have that experience. So anyway, I thought I would read tonight a little bit from the last chapter of the book, which is um, which is the chapter that's most directly about my father. Um, it's called "Nothing Is the Force That Renovates the World," which of of course is Emily Dickinson. It's a quote from Dickinson: "Nothing is the force that renovates the world." So I'll read a few sections and I'll intersperse them with with um, some of my own poems, and then I'll stop. We'll chat, like David said. Nothing is the force that renovates the world. The first, and I think only poetry reading I ever went to with my father was at a bookshop next to Washington Square Park in Manhattan. It was afternoon and there were two poets reading. I remember at lunch we'd eaten and drunk to our satisfaction and beyond. So as soon as the first poet began, my father almost immediately fell asleep in his chair, (laughs) leaning back his head, quietly snoring. I did not wake him. The second poet began. His voice was much quieter than the first, and the whole room seemed to focus down into it. My father's eyes opened. His head snapped a bit alarmingly forward, and he stared at the poet the entire time while he read. Afterward, my father came up to me among the shelves and said, I loved that, even though I didn't understand it. He repeated that sentence over and over, confused and distressed. I didn't know what to say. A part of me wishes I had found a way just to ask him what the poems made him think of, what they brought up in his mind. I would have loved to hear it. It would have been such a different way of getting to know my father, impossible now. In the end, though, I know it was good for this experience to remain private. It could never have been truly translated or explained. To emerge from sleep to hear the poems and follow and join them with a gradually waking mind, to understand them and even love them in a way that comes from language but is beyond the ability of language to describe. This may very well have been a nearly perfect experience to have with poetry, especially for someone inclined to be skeptical of it. Despite its ordinary resistance to poetry, My father's sleepy, drifting attention slipped easily into the associating movement of the mind of that second reader, the great Slovenian poet Tomasz Szalaman, and then continued in its own private directions. I have found that the poems which have meant the most to me, to which I return again and again, retain a central unsayability, a place where the drama of truly looking for something essential that can never quite be reached is expressed. Somewhere in the poem, or at its end, knowingness stops. You can feel the intelligence in the poem truly exploring, clambering along the words and down the page, and also that intelligence stopping at what cannot be known. Those moments where a limit is reached can often be the greatest and most honest in poetry. They can come first as a surprise, then immediately afterward feel inevitable, at least for a little while. Once in a lecture, I heard the poet Ralph Angel. Isn't that a great name for a poet, by the way? Ralph Angel. Ralph Angel. (laughs) Say, poetry has always existed and always will exist because there will always be the need to say that which cannot be said. The lyric, writes Fanny Howe in her essay, Bewilderment, is a method of searching for something that cannot be found. Poetry by nature brings us up to the limit of what can be known, and in great part, this is why it exists and continues to be written. This is why asking for a certain kind of knowledge, that way of knowing we automatically and justifiably expect from other texts, anything other than a poem, limits our experience with poetry. If we imagine a poem as something to be answered or solved, we will most likely find ways to do so, But I think we would be better off to think of understanding in a poem as an ongoing process of attention. Simone Weil writes that attention is the purest form of generosity. A generous, open, genuinely focused attention moves us through the poem, just as it moves us through an experience, through a friendship, through anything else that means and keeps on meaning. If a poem is really good, you can't really say what it's about that is, what its central message is, any more than you can do so for a painting or a piece of music or a person or a mountain. In response to a question after a lecture at New York University about how to understand poetry and what it means, 
the poet Joshua Beckman said the following, if you imagine the poem is a question to be answered, once you've answered the question, you move on. The quality of a great poem might very well be not only the impossibility, but the undesirability of feeling as if it can be ever be completely understood, that the experience of reading it could ever be finished. A poem is like a person. The more you know someone, the more you realize there's always something more to know and understand. A final understanding could probably only begin upon permanent separation or death. This is why we come back to certain poems as we do to places or people, to experience and re-experience, to see ourselves for who we truly are, and to continue to be changed. When I was 15. When I was 15, I suddenly knew I would never understand geometry. Who was my teacher? That name is gone. I only remember the gray feeling in a classroom filled with vast theoretical distances. I can still see odd shapes drawn on the board and those inscrutable formulas everyone was busily into their notebooks scribbling. I looked down at the Velcro straps of my entirely white shoes and knew inside me things had long ago gone terribly wrong and would continue to be. When the field hockey star broke her knee, I wrote a story for the school paper, then brought her the history notes in the snow. She stood in the threshold, a whole firelit life of mysterious familial warmth glowing behind her, and took them from my hands, like the blameless queen of elegant violence she was. Walking home, encased in immense amounts of down, I listened to the analog ghost in the machine pour from the cassette I had drawn flowers on. Into my ears it sang, everything they told you makes you believe you're trapped in a snow globe, forgotten in a dark closet where exhausted shadows argue what is sorrow cannot become joy. But I am here from the future to tell you you are not. All you must do is stay asleep a few more years great traveler waiting to go. I wake up before the machine. I wake up before the machine, made of all the choices we are together not making, lights up this part of Oakland. It's dark, so I can imagine another grid humming in the east. Already people are deciding. I lie in the western pre-decision darkness, and almost hear that silent voice saying, go down there, the coffee needs you, to place it in the device. Its next form will help you remember, daylight is coming, but dreams do not go away. They just move off and change. Your mind is a tree on a little hill surrounded by grasses that look up and say, Father, wind loves moving through you. The night my father died, my mother, brother, sister, and I had sat all day with him in a surreal vigil in the back room of our house. Though he had been mostly unconscious for days, we talked to him and to each other, and many hours somehow passed while he labored on. The hospice people had told us that at some point the four of us would have to leave because he would not die when we were in the room. This seemed impossible. He was so far gone, how could he know? Yet finally, in the very early hours of the next day, without really discussing it, we left him alone with the nurse and went into another part of the house. Just a few minutes later, she came rushing into where we were and told us we should come back. He was going. By the time we got in, we were just in time to hear one last breath, maybe a final cough, or just the already abandoned body letting go of one last posthumous escalation. We all know when it is time to go, we each will have to cross over alone into whatever new place 
or oblivion we believe is there. Each of us will at that moment be, as Wallace Stevens says of the listener who listens in the snow, one who nothing himself beholds, nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. But not yet. For the time being, may it be a long time, we can be together in various ways. My favorite poem of all is one of the very last, written by the lawyer, Stevens, final soliloquy of the interior paramour. I believe this interior paramour has a hidden desire to be together with others, to somehow share with other people the very private act of imagining. In the poem, the scene is a group of people in the evening. A presence is felt, powerful and benevolent, as together they create a kind of secular holy space dedicated to the imagination. They're reading together, and in doing so, they're pushing something away and also bringing something into being, a space. This space is created by an act of negation, of forgetting each other and ourselves. It is only then that another consciousness can begin to emerge. In the poem, immediately upon forgetting themselves, the people begin in the room to feel the obscurity of an order, a whole, a knowledge, that which arranged the rendezvous. They start not only to feel, but to know something about this greater order, a knowledge, that which put them together in this place. This seems to me to be very close to a religious experience. When people ask me if I'm a religious person, I say no because I don't go to houses of worship. But because of poetry, I silently think yes. This knowledge, as Stephen says, has a vital boundary in the mind. The mind is where the poem happens. In ordinary usage, the word vital most often is a synonym for important or essential, but its, orig its origin is the Latin word for life, vita. This moment of feeling the world imagined is intimately connected with the basic fact of being alive. And it is connected with the feeling of a boundary beyond which there is that old nothingness. The last lines of the poem remind me of the comfort I've felt in small gatherings in difficult moments, and as well of certain times when I've been in the audience listening to poetry and have in the faces of my fellow strangers noticed and myself felt a kind of relaxed, wistful, dreamy attention not necessarily even toward a particular poem, but toward possibility. In this paradoxically collective yet also private space, something extraordinary can happen. These are the last lines of Stevens' poem. Out of the same light, out of the central mind, we make a dwelling in the evening air in which being there together is enough. Despite our knowledge of all the terrible things and the ultimate nothingness that surrounds and awaits us, Poetry isn't a consolation for death, nothingness, the void. It's possible poetry only sharpens that painful knowledge. But being there together, alone and with others, in a place of great, generous attention, is and is not enough, we say, grateful for the light, aware of the dark. This is called Poem for Doom. Poem for Doom. Birds don't lie. They're never lost. They never think, above the earth I stole this form, or blue is the best. <laughs> I listen to it, singing, my old man is far away, singing American songs, stolen from those who lived in what now is, but was not the park, which makes me love him. I'm eating an orange someone grabbed from nature. Over me I hear controlled mechanical obsidian dragonflies search for anarchists. For a long time I went to school in the palm of my life, carrying a stone, obeying the law of semblance. Now each night I bring it back, down to the land asphodels cover. Then I wake and take my son out on the porch to say hello everything, hello green hills that slept, 
Hello tree drawn on the side of a white truck, exorably rumbling towards some hole. Hello magnolia, whose pink and white blossoms have left it for where, oh sweet doom, we are all going. Then behind us, we close the black door with the golden knob and sit in the great chair, morning light through the shades, always makes look like a dream forest throne. All around our subjects, the shadow trees rise up, their private thoughts filling the room. I take them like an animal with a gentle, ungrateful ceremony from a leaf takes dew. That's it, thanks. Thank you. All right, um, let's start with the, uh, well, let's start with the genesis of the book. Let's start with a, a relatively easy, or maybe not, question. Um, you've been, you'd been thinking about this book and working on this book for a long time. Um, what was the initial impulse to get started? It grew out of some essays you were writing, but the book was there as a larger concept before, before the essays existed, right? Or some idea of a book like this. What was the initial impulse to do this? Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, I was think it was part of it was being a poet in the world and just having that, I mean, a lot of people in this room are poets, so they know what I'm talking about, that thing where people just constantly are confessing to you that, that they don't understand poetry, you know, like you're some yeah. kind of priest. You know, they're always like, I have to tell you something. And you're like, you totally know what they're going to say. If you're a poet, you're just like, I know what you're going to say. And they're like, I, like, the, like, they're the first person who's ever said it to you. So I thought, you know, and, and a lot of poets, you know, they're like, fuck, not again, you know. And, but, but, but I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, wait, wait, wait a minute. There's a lot of smart people who are saying this to me, you know, a lot of thoughtful people. So there's got to be something there. So, all right, let's think about this. Let's start thinking about it. And then, you know, once I started thinking about it, there was a lot to think about. And then at a certain point, you know, you asked me to write something for the LA Times. Um, I got asked to be a Tin House. Stephen was there the, that year. The, um, you know, and they, they have you do a lecture. Ruth was there, too. And, um, you know, so I had to write this lecture. So I started, like, when I got asked to write something, like a piece of prose, I would sort of turn it towards this idea of like trying to like answer this question of like what what's what's poetry all about what's it for um yeah and so then once I started to get into that oh man it was like such a mess you know because there was so much to think about and so many ideas and so many things to read and before I knew it you know my office was just filled with books and all these trips to the library, you know, it was just, it was, it was, it was a lot. So at some point I was like, oh shit, I'm writing a book, you know, oh man, I thought, I swore I'd never do that. <laughs> you know, you prose writers, I got in that mess that you all are in all the time. But, uh, but yeah, so yeah, so then I was in it and then I, then I'm just one of those people who once I'm in it, it's like, I got to finish it or I'll, you know, feel real bad about myself. So, all right. Um, I'm one of those people who like, I got to finish it so I can feel real bad about myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all you know. <laughs> yeah. you know um, yeah. But I'm, I'm, but but let's talk about the. I mean, you're, you're. There's a relationship here, obviously. I mean, it's it's prose about poetry, but in some way, I think you know the book is trying to occupy a similar kind of sus suspended space to the mm -hmm. suspended space you're talking about poems occupying. I wonder if, in first place, I know you we, you touched on it a little bit in that description of your father and you mm -hmm. going to the reading. If you can talk a little bit about that kind of suspended space you see the poem, the, a poem sitting in. That, yeah. You know, it's an experience, right? We read it. Right. The, the the act of reading it is an experience. The experience is the key element. And then part two, I'd love to see you kind of talk about that in relation to the ideas you're exploring in the prose. Okay. Um, so I was wary about writing about poetry. I mean, it's very, you know, it's kind of a weird thing to do. And it took me a long time to realize that I think what I'm really doing is I'm sort of clearing away some things that if there's some idea, there's a lot of ideas that people have about poetry, very, very intelligent people, artistic people, you know, have about poetry that is just that you hear them say that. And if you're a poet, you realize, oh, if you think that, 
you're never going to like any poetry because it's just... Like, so I, can you talk about some of those Oh, those that, that the words in poems don't mean what they say, right. you know, that everything in a poem is a symbol, that it's coded language, that it's, you know, that it's, that it's this, you know, that it's kind of this riddle and the job of a, is, you know, a reader of poetry is kind of figure out what the big idea is at the heart of it. And the big idea is usually something pretty stupid, like death is sad, you know, <laughs> and like, you know, so, you know, so that's, that's like, I mean, death is sad, but like, you know, but we don't think we need poems to tell us that, right? But, um, you know, so it's, it's, I, I realized that like, you know, you'd start talking to people and they have these ideas and they were, they learned them in school or some, somewhere, you know, and, and so I thought, okay, the first thing, first thing is I, we got to talk about this stuff and kind of deal with that. And so the first part of the book, a lot of it is about reading literally and getting into language and what happens when you really take language, you know, the words and poems for what they really are saying. It's amazing things start to happen immediately. All kinds of interesting, exciting things. Yeah. And then, then other things, you know, about what poems can do that other types of writing don't do, or at least don't take as their primary task. I mean, I think that, you know, they're, all the things I talk about that poems do, other types of writing do, but they do sort of maybe along the way, or as part of what they're doing. But poems, there are certain things that, that, that poems prioritize. Mm -hmm. That is, that um, because they reject, or, or not reject, but they just, they just, they don't, um, they don't have any obligation to tell a story or to be consistent or to follow through on anything really. And, and when you reject that, when you, when you, when you let go of that, all kinds of other possibilities open up in language. And that's another thing that takes some time to talk through and show. It doesn't mean that poems are meaningless or, but it just means that they're free in a certain kind of way that opens up a lot of possibilities. It also cuts off some interesting possibilities, you know, that we, we need, you know, for storytelling or, other things that poems aren't really that good at, for the most part, you know. Right, but that's, that's not that the, that, yeah. But that's not the purpose of the poem, right? That's what you're. you're I mean, I don't. If we can even is. say that there is a purpose to a poem, or you know, the, right? Poems aren't. I mean, they can be narrative, but there's no, as you say, right. there's no obligation for them to be narrative. I mean, Richard Hugo, the poet Richard Hugo, who wrote this great book, The Triggering Town, he has this great line in it where he says, "The imagination is a cynic." You know, and I think the cynical aspect of imagination, the sort of like just the almost like magpie aspect. Magpie? I don't know. I've just made that up. Isn't that a bird that like likes pretty things or something? I don't know what Shiny the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's like birds and trees. I have no idea. I, I, I can like blindness, but that, that's a tree. Yeah, no, I know it's a tree. I cannot tell you what kind it is. Um, but uh, it's a bookstore tree. But 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 you know, like 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 poets are kind of like dumb. You know, they just like they're attracted to whatever's pretty or interesting or whatever and they don't like they forget the thing that happened before and, and, and just moved on to the next thing or whatever. But that's great. I mean that's that's a kind of great way to be in language. You know, that can that can create these amazing things. But then people go back and look at them and they wanna talk about poems as if they're these arguments or short stories or something or essays. They're not. The great right. poems aren't aren't that way. They just aren't. And I mean we could sit here, you know, we could sit here and I could show you, you know, that that's not what they do. You know, that's what I try to do in the book is say that it's not that they, there aren't interesting ideas in them. There are, but to talk about them like they're essays or short stories is, is just kind of violence, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, how much of this has to do with how badly poetry is taught? I'm not talking about <laughs> poetry. I'm not talking about the writing of poetry, but I'm yeah. talking about the reading of poetry, particularly. In, I felt yeah. a little bad about that because I talk about. I sort of am a little hard on poetry teachers in the book, but the fact is, is that most people te teach high school. You know, it's like. A lot of them aren't trained in literature or poetry, and they also they have a lot of pressures on them, and they have to get up really early in the morning too. I don't understand that, but like, they, but you know, and but it's teach like all day. I know all day, <laughs> no break. We complain after like two hours. Nobody like does their homework. It's a total mining, drag. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they're like taking guns away from people and shit, and we're like, you know, <laughs> we're like, my students didn't do the reading, but like, but yeah, but the, but but the, but, the, but I mean, yeah, you know. So high, I don't want to be hard on high school teachers, but I do think that if you look, I. I, I, I did this work so y'all don't have to do this but like I looked pretty carefully at the common core got so boring you want to say common core you know those exams that's that's the thing that's what all you know all these high school kids are doing and junior high school kids are doing Ugh, the stuff they say about poetry is insane it's crazy it's so wrong it's like nuts and these poor high school teachers have to teach these kids how to pass these exams you know, otherwise there'll be failures and like, you know, whatever, vote for Trump and shit. You know, so, so these high school teachers have to like save them. And, but so I'm, I'm like trying to figure out now my new project is I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to teach poetry 
that is right for poetry that can also work with those common core standards. I'm starting to meet with some people who do curriculum development and stuff wow. and, and, and uh, up in up in Northern California. The, the, so starting to have those conversations with people. I don't know if it's possible. I don't know. But I'm, but, but we're going to talk about it. Yeah, so. But I mean, do you think that this has to do with how would I put it? You know, poems are themselves, right? But we we come from a kind of academic tradition, and frankly, like, like a, a cultural tradition of wanting to be able to explain things, wanting to be able to kind of empirically understand how something works, what it means, what's the takeaway, right? right. Poems themselves, they are their own takeaway, right? So, do you think that the intention or kind of function of poetry is antithetical to that kind of the kind of analytical structure of our educational system which is so much about the result the result the result the poem to me is it's not about a result outside of itself i think you've i think you've folded real quick two things together that are actually separate the analytical thing the close reading thing the paying attention thing i don't like paying attention that's a word i despise but but the, the being attentive thing that's crucial mm -hmm. you know for reading for reading anything especially poems but the takeaway part you're right this idea that it's 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 got a it's got to have a, a a usefulness that's that that you can quantify and like pull out and hold and that I mean poems I mean this is gonna I'm gonna sound like a fucking Bay Area like asshole but like but like but poems are they really are like anti-capitalist actually they are they're 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 they are uh, anarchic and they don't and they're mm -hmm. they're unmonetizable I mean they're the reason why there's a reason why when situation gets completely desperate like you know and and when stalin was in power you know poets poets were the last ones left holding the flame of the imagination because akhmatova on akhmatova she didn't write any of her poems down at that point she her friends memorized them she memorized them you can't stop it you cannot stop it and you can't monetize it and you can't you can't like real poetry you can't monetize mm -hmm. it doesn't have a use in that way and that's that's tough you know it's a tough thing to talk about and explain and describe and so but i think they're super useful yeah. but just not in that in that same way and i think it is a little bit of a threat actually to to our you know to our usual ways of thinking about usefulness mm -hmm. no that that makes sense were you concerned at all in i mean the, the book is like a non proselytizing Bit of, bit of proselytizing, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you're 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 on the you're at the pulpit for yeah. po for poetry. Um, I'm curious about the kind of balance there too. This is kind of going back to where I was asking you at the beginning, but the idea that you know you are arguing a point in in the book, and one of the points you're arguing is that um, poems don't necessarily, as I said, poems are their own point. Do you think were you concerned about? keeping the poem distinct from the discussion of poetry. Yeah, yeah, my god. I mean, there were a lot of times writing the book when I thought all this all this words about poetry, it's horrible. I should just I should just give people poems, you know, it's I shouldn't I should not say anything. Yeah, I mean, I had that impulse a lot, but I like I said, I came back to this idea that I do think that clearing out some stuff is helpful, really helpful, especially for people who are you know, maybe not quite as comfortable around poetry or whatever. And then there are interesting things you can say about poems without wrecking them. And so my job was to just do that. And I tried really hard. And sometimes I would overwrite or I'd write too much into a poem or I'd, I'd just would fall apart. And I had to make sure, yeah, that I didn't, I didn't, like as Wordsworth says, you know, murder to dissect. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's, that's the, but, but I think there's lots of things you can say about poetry and lots of things, ways you can talk about it that are interesting. You know, it's just, but it was, it was groping around kind of blindly to find what that was for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of trial and error, a lot of error, a lot of error. A lot of error. Yeah. No, I'm curious. Now I'm curious, you know, you were saying yesterday that the, the book required more of a plant, right? Poems or, you know, when you sit down to write a poem, you have an idea of what you're doing, but you're not, you're sort of you're mm -hmm. discussing, you're communicating with the poem, right? The poem is asserting itself. That to write a book of prose, you you felt it needed more of a kind of programmatic um, approach. Right? Oh, yeah. You needed to have a sense of where it was going. Completely so it just unsuited kind of to that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my mind doesn't work that way. It's not how I think. I don't, I don't, it was horrible. It's like I also have to sit there and work and work and work. It's grindy. Writing prose is grindy. I don't know, like, how you do it. It's like, really, I really, I'm not kidding. I'm not trying to be funny. It's like, I just was like, after a couple hours, I was like, is this ever going to be over? You know, and then it's like, next day and the next day and the next day. It's like, shit, man. It's like being in jail. You know, poetry's awesome. You're like, do, do, oh, you know.
know, I'm going to get a cup of coffee and look at that bird over there. <laughs> She's, you know, it's like it's good to be that way when you're writing poems. It's supposed to have that mind, that open window mind, you know. But poem, but prose, you got to like, okay, I said this. It's like now I got to say that, and I got to say the next thing. I said the next thing, and I explain that. What about this other thing? My God, it was years of that shit. Right. And it was, it, but it was. I mean, it was cool because I was thinking through things, and I was a part of me was like, oh, this is sort of satisfying. And then, but I, it was, oof. yeah. I mean, I, 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 yeah, never again. <laughs> doing it again. I was so, and the funny thing about it all was that it was that uh, it proved my point. The process to me personally, I'm just talking about to me personally, not to you all, but to me personally, it proved what I was saying. People write poems and prose for different reasons. I just understood that in a visceral way that was only an intellectual way after I wrote this book because I was like, man, this is not writing poetry. I was desperate to get back to writing poems. You know, and this new, those poems I, I read were all poems that I've written since this book. And I, I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm so relieved <laughs> in those poems to be just like, la, 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 you know, like, what's next? Okay, over here. And then I'm just going to, as soon as it's really beautiful, I'm going to end it. I'm like you know, like I don't, I don't care. I'm done. I'm done. You know, I'm not. Right. You know, like you know, my the yeah. Were you writing poems while you were writing the book at all? A little bit, a little bit. I got in, yeah, a little bit, but mm-hmm. not. But it was tough because I also had a young a baby at the mm-hmm. time, so it was. It was, uh, I mean, I didn't have the baby. My wife had the baby, but like I had to hold the baby sometimes. But it was like, but yeah. Baby was, was living in your house. Baby was living in my house. <laughs> yeah. Not stop. It's like, it was a baby in my house. But like, but yeah, that's, but uh, yeah, um, yeah, I had to do that thing. So, so there was that and then writing the prose and teaching and doing all this other editing stuff. So there was a lot going on. I wrote some poems, mm-hmm. but not, but I missed it. Oh my God, I missed it so much, you know? And so I was so glad to be done with this was such a relief and then I could write poems again could write stuff nobody reads anymore it was great (laughs) Um, all right so here's a question so you have you know you you're you're talking about poetry in the broad sense book comes out you've had some uh, a lot of positive reaction you've had some Mm -hmm. pushback Mm -hmm. in terms of you know poetry world is not a uniform monolith right it's multiple people with different points of view and different perspectives Um, Lord of the Flies really Lord of the Flies right the stakes are (laughs) what is it the the fights are more vicious because the stakes are so low Um, but the uh, (laughs) that's what they say (laughs) (laughs) so I'm curious about you know about some of the guy (laughs) there's no you know whatever (laughs) I I stole that from somebody but um I'm curious about the the sense of the kind of pushback. I mean, one of the things which you know is total bullshit, but you know, you there was some you, you know the, the the question of whether you're making an argument that poems need to be simple and easy to understand. Clearly, you're not. But that kind of let's call it a misreading of your argument. Um, I'm giving yeah, you a chance. To, I'm fun. giving you a chance to respond. Oh, in front of a sympathetic audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it didn't surprise me. I, I think there's some poets who are just pissed off that they're not the ones who, you know, like they wanted to be the ones to say something, but they didn't put all the work into it. Mm -hmm. So they were mad that I said it, you know, and I also think we're living in a time when, you know, I think in in our literary, I mean, y'all, this would be interesting to talk about a little bit, but like in the literary world, I was, so, so, so when I was reading, when I was writing this book, one of the things I did is I, I wrote, I read a lot of writings about poetry and, and many of the best writings about poetry were written by poets. I mean, Shelley or Lorca or right. Stevens or Hadrian Rich or Marina Svatai. I mean, it's just, you could just go down the list of people, Faust, every, and, and you know, it's, and they speak with a lot of conviction and authority in a way, which seemed to be okay. But now it seems like talking that way just pisses people off, just basically, like their first reaction is to think, what, where do you get off? You know, saying this, but it's, but it's hard to say anything interesting if you don't say it with conviction. You know, and it doesn't mean just because I'm saying something with conviction doesn't mean that I can't accept a different point of view or that I think I know everything. It's just, you know, it's just impassioned, I guess, maybe you could say, or like interested. And so um, I think that just that mode is unfamiliar to people right now, especially when it comes to talking about poetry. And so some people just reacted like, like, you know, assuming that I was saying that everything I was saying was true and everybody else, what everybody else was false, but I wasn't saying that. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to open up a conversation. Um, But, you know, whatever. I don't give a fuck what other people's... I mean, especially other poets. I mean, come on. It's like, I didn't write this for poets. Forgive me. I wrote it for, you know... I, I mean, I wrote it for a bigger audience than that. I'd want to talk to people who 
don't necessarily feel good about poetry or don't necessarily feel like they understand it. I'd be happy if poets liked it and were interested in it. That would make me very pleased. But I didn't write it for that. This is not a scholarly book. or right. I didn't do that. Why would I do that? Although it is a book of criticism you know, in certain Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I get interested in stuff. But I'm saying I didn't, that's not why. I wanted to write it for that person who you meet at a dinner party you sit down next to on the plane who's interesting but they just like don't there's like what are you what are you talking about you write poems what do you mean you know and right. like how do you do that right that's what my yeah. job was yeah. to try or that's the job i gave myself to try to do that that was interesting to me that was more interesting to me than talking to other poets i'm sorry the poets in this audience so there is that proselytizing element right or that polemical element but it is also an aesthetic statement i mean obviously you're yeah. you're writing from your own point of view your own perspective the poems you're pulling out as examples or yeah i mean that, my argument know. is you're going to die without it that was my argument. It's like, if you don't have poetry, you're going to die. You're going to wither and die. Right. Like, that, that was basically my argument. It's like, you, you don't know it, but you're dead. That was the book proposal, dying. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, seriously, it's like that great quote from, Steve, from Williams, you know. Yeah. Um, men you know, have died for right, lack it's, of what's uh, found there. It is difficult to get the news from poetry, but men die every day for lack of what is found there. That's in his great long poem, Asphodel, that greeny flower. It is difficult to get the news from poetry, but men die every day for lack of what is found there. I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true. And so in the end, what weird thing that happened is that when I, right when I finished this book, was right, right, as, right at the time of the presidential election, you know, it was all messed up. It was like everybody. And, and, um, but I thought that I had this instinct that like poet, maybe, maybe the thinking of poetry is, is the kind of thinking, it's that sort of thinking that's going to save us. Mm-hmm. And I know that's an absurd idea. Believe me, I understand how absurd that sounds coming out of my mouth. I'm not, you know, an idiot. But, like, but, it's, but I also kind of think it might be true because we tried everything else. You know, you can yell all you want at people about climate change. You know, or like, whatever, racism. I mean, you can scream at them. And the more you scream at them, the more like this they get. They're not going to listen. Sorry to be the one to deliver this terrible news. We can have all these podcasts. It's not going to help. You know, it's like, right? That's sorry, but I, I mean, but but you can change. But you can if you engage with their imaginations, then things start to happen. And and you know, I'm not saying you know reading poetry is going to you know help get Kamala Harris elected. But like, but I mean, it's you know, but I'm just you know, but I really do think there is a dip. We need to start cultivating at least within ourselves a different kind of consciousness or else we're going to be lost we at least have to do it in ourselves right you know and that became the sort of you know the end of this book we came a lot about that and you i mean you know again i i don't know if you have it with you because i might ask you to read it but you've been you know you write poems that are also social or political you're you know you were talking yesterday about the paul ryan poem which is which tin house published um which actually kind of enacts exactly what you're talking about right it Mm -hmm. starts as a sort of critique or even attack on ryan and then it kind of works its way around do you have you have it do you want to did you bring it I think I brought it. I don't, I've had down. Yeah, um, yeah. I was this poem. Um, well, it's going to be quite anticlimactic if I don't have it. But the, but the um, the uh, poem is. Uh, so I'm saying all this stuff, and then I. I oh yeah, I have it. The. Um, Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our friends with benefits club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Yeah, I mean, of course I'm really angry. And and uh, I don't ordinarily associate anger with... You know, with with making poetry, it's just not for me personally. That's not something that I connect. As some people, they do, but um, but then I was like, oh wait, but I'm now I'm I'm eliminating a part of myself that that could connect with the poetic act. So what if I just let myself get really angry and I started thinking about, you know, who's the worst of these this these this collection of like demons that these monsters who who are now and somehow got control of the levers of power and. I ruled out and immediately ruled out some of them, like Donald Trump. He doesn't count because he's like not even a person, so like he's just he can't be the worst. You know, he's just like he's like he's he's just so awful. You know, I started going down the list or whatever, and then I I I personally it seemed obvious to me who the worst one was, which was Paul Ryan, um, the oiliest, just wormiest like little shit 
ball, you know, like I just like I hate that guy more than I hate the other ones for some reason. So anyway, so I just sort of let myself go into that space of being really angry. So I'll read this poem and then maybe we can have a few yeah. questions. I don't want to keep people sitting here for a million years, but like maybe, is that okay? So I'll read this and then we can talk a little bit. Okay, so this poem's called Paul Ryan. Trigger warning. It's called Paul Ryan. <laughs> Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, your name so perfectly combines New Testament righteous purity with American white immigrant self-pity. It must have been invented in some brushed metallic building, the exact color of despair. You could walk right past and never see. Or sad ghosts think all day about the most efficient way to eat light. They know we need it. It could be used to power every black box, every machine. The ghosts don't want to eat the light, but they must. They work for immense demons. Paul Ryan, you do too. <laughs> Many years ago, they filled you with carefully harvested breath of emptied factories, then grew your house, its pretend love and grim commotion, and the slow, imperceptible drip of ideology contaminated your blood until you actually thought your struggles and success were real. So your job was to put on your red hat and go into the world to tell us what is, is by nature just, and only vast forces are real. And even a slight compassion flicker is just a selfish desire to seem unselfish. And maybe you're right. There can be no more pure water. We are defeated and must accept immortal drought. But I don't know. It seems to me the dark triumph that animates your tragic corpse drinks hate. So I will not drink it. Paul Ryan, I love you. I kiss your dry lips to defeat you. All right, that seems a good image to, to stop on. Um, <laughs> the uh, last time I read that poem, uh, I looked up after I read it, and there was a woman in the audience who had the most incredibly horrified look on her face. Like, I could tell that she actually, like, somehow accidentally pictured, like, me actually kissing Paul Ryan, and she was just like... <laughs> I felt so bad. I, I was like, it's okay. It didn't really happen. No worries. So, so. All right, so let's open it up to some questions Couple, yeah, no from... Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, one of the things you said about uh, it's not monetizable. Yeah. Okay, so, in, uh, why smart people will react against poetry in this negative way? I, um, as, as someone who was one of those who, who would attempt for going on 25 years, uh, attempt and give up and attempt and give up and get annoyed uh, actually now I realize um, the kind of uh, abandon that you find in it is a little frightening mm -hmm. because it, and you end up having thoughts and you've been forcing yourself not to have like people who like Paul Ryan they'll read that poem and not even I suspect not even finish it because as soon as it starts to rise up they'll get terrified and go well, what does this mean am I some commie pinko you know what I mean <laughs> I hope that's what they think yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's be awesome that's what they'll think yeah and no you're right do you do Yes. That's what's happening. With oh, yeah. I think you're right. I think that poetry can draw you awfully close to some things that are scary, and that's what that whole last chapter is about, about the abyss, you know, the, 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 the nothingness, the darkness that, that's a tra this fearful, exciting, you know, darkness. But I'd also think, yeah, on a more different level, it can draw you into some kinds of thinking that you don't want to have. And um, for sure, yeah. And I think that's true for literature in general, for sure. But I think there's a way that poetry can somehow like haunt you. Like it can take you over in a way that can really feel a little bit out of control. Um, and so, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I mean, I've had that experience, you know, with poems where I felt like scared, 
scared of them for sure you know it's yeah so but it sounds like you know exactly what poems do you're like you seem like just listening you're like you know you don't need any help you're like that's new that's well you know what you're talking about now so oh okay that's how long it takes (laughs) yeah yeah others don't be shy yeah i wonder when i was thinking about your argument how your position which i think is is wise and, and needful. Um, accounts for a poem, like I was thinking about the Shelley poem about Ovidius. And like that is, I mean, that is, if you take the time to parse just the like vernacular, people know that vocabulary is no longer current. I think it's fairly transparent what, for the most part, Shelley is getting at there. Yeah. And I think that that exists in a very different space than, let's say, like modernist and onward to sort of move away from traditional referentiality. And so I was wondering, you know, how you would account for in your theory this way that people's relationship to poetry that we all kind of collectively assume has diminished over time is related to a move of poetry away from, oh, this is like a sad story about a sad thing in history and I, I recognize some symbols like a skull and it's that to something like Stevens, which is like marginally suitable in the perfect liberal way. Yeah, I do, I write to, to, I mean, this would be a long conversation. You know this poem by Shelley Ozymandias? I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand into the, you know, it's like, it's so good. It's like, rah, you know, it's a great poem. But uh, yeah, um, nothing beside remains. Yeah, it's a great poem. But uh, it's about this statue in the desert and how everything crumbles and nothing lasts and power doesn't last. Um, but uh, yeah, but that's pre-modernism. Yeah, I, I t- in the book I write a lot about modernism and I write about the wasteland and I write about a lot about Stevens and and you know and about how I think that in some ways we maybe got the wrong message from those poems that they're that that they are again these secret codes or everything is hidden in them and that's not really true when you read them actually they're 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 doing something different from other forms of writing but they're not they're meaning even if there are allusions in them or there are there are things that refer to his, historical stuff or mythology or whatever that's ancillary to their central effect that's my that's my idea, and I'm sticking with it. Yeah, so that's why I try to write. I, I, I take a fair amount of time to talk about the wasteland, actually, in the book. So yeah, so you're on to you know you're on to maybe it's something that I definitely felt like I needed to address in the book for sure. Yeah, hope you. Okay, cool. I hope you're convinced, partially at least. Yeah. Eden. Hi. Hi. I would be interested in your, um, I guess, your year-long tenure as the editor of the poet, the poems in the New York Times magazine. Mm-hmm. So I was curious how you decided to pick them, and you were obviously, I think, working on this at the same time. And so were you mm. thinking about yeah. people like me, who maybe weren't going to read any poems except the poem that you picked on Sunday, and how you would just... Dis- like the introduction to the poem were always very useful to me to be like, okay, this is how I, this is an entrance for me of a way to think about the poem. I thought a ton about it. I thought about the fact that, so Ian's referring to the fact that for a year, they, they have this annually rotating position for the New York Times Sunday Magazine. The New York Times is a, is a small, uh, newspaper that's that comes out of New York, um, but it's yeah. Some of you might have been familiar with it. Yeah, they have a website, but the, uh, but but uh, they have a magazine, a glossy magazine, and in it they have a poem each week. And they each year they have an annually rotating position um, that a poet you know selects a poem each week. And the first poet was Natasha Trethewey, poet laureate Natasha Trethewey, and then I did it for a year, and now Terrence Hayes is doing it. And so they change every year. He's been good too. He's good. Yeah, he's not as good as me, but he's good. No, I'm just <laughs> no, he's great. I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, so no, I thought a lot about that that experience of how you're flipping through and you're reading Jay Caspian Kang's cool thing about like the, you know this word and what it means or whatever, and then you're like you know you got the John Hodgman thing in there, and suddenly then you're like whoa a poem shit, you know. So the poems had to like f- be able to function in that way, and that it's it's there's some poems that are really great, but they need a different kind of they they it's hard for them to kind of push back against a lot of pros around them. But then there are just some that just announce themselves with such confidence. And especially at the beginning, they're pretty um, easy to get a hold of. And so that, those were maybe more the ones that I was drawn to for this particular project. Yeah. And did they, were those, um, were they published a long time ago? Or no, they were all from 
books of poetry that had been recently published or forthcoming. They were, they were, it was within kind of a year or, 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 or forthcoming. So I had like stacks and stacks of books in my office. Yeah, everybody sent me their books and it was, it was kind of great. I mean, I read a lot of contemporary American poetry, which I, you know, don't usually do, but was, I, I read like, a, like everything. So the, this year I'm like, if somebody brings up a book, I'm like, oh yeah, I read that. It's kind of exciting, but that'll never happen again. But, but, uh, yeah, so. but this brings up an interesting question of context, right? Because there are obviously, there are certain poems that are better suited for reading, certain poems that don't go mm -hmm. over well at reading, certain poems yeah. that are, work really well in a magazine like that where they're framed not by poetry but by other things. Um, so I wonder, I mean, do you have any additional thoughts on kind of the, con the, the, the sort of the context of the poem and how the context of the poem can affect the meaning of the poem or our experience of the meaning of the poem? Um, well, how the context... Um, <laughs> I mean the context within the poem, but the context of the presentation of the poem. Yeah, no, I think what you're saying is right. I just think there's a lot of great poems that, and really interesting poems that maybe function better in a book. Mm -hmm. You know, and they need to be they're 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 the eighth poem in a book, and so you're kind of they're amazing. But they, if you ever just pulled them out and just gave them to somebody, they wouldn't they wouldn't it would be tough for someone to get the idea, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I was so I was sort of in this particular case was looking for a certain kind of thing, but. But um, yeah, I mean, I think also just, I guess I should just say that one thing I always wish I could say is that poems are weird because their, their whole function is to make you drift and dream. I mean, that's their whole, they activate that machine we all have in our heads that starts us associating and thinking about other things or whatever. And sometimes I, I hear people feel bad, especially poetry readings are like, I wasn't paying attention the whole time or I didn't get, and I always, sometimes I think the better the poem, the more likely it is to make you stop paying attention to it. You know, actually, especially to reading. That's why books of poetry are great, because you can always go back and read them again. It's like not your only chance. We're not in like, it's not Homer. It's not like your only chance to hear it. You know, so, so, but I just sort of, oh, I always kind of feel like I wish people felt okay about that. Because, you know, I mean, I've just been thinking a lot about, I guess, about Ashbery recently, of course, because he just passed away. And people, you know, his poems are like these incredibly potent dreaming machines. You know, you just start getting in them and you're just, you're, your consciousness completely changes. That's what they're for. Mm -hmm. And and so people feel kind of bad. They're like, oh, I didn't get the point of it. Or I, didn't, it was, I lost focus halfway through. It's like, good. That's, that's it did what it was supposed to do. You know, it's got you into your own dreaming space. And maybe you didn't finish the poem. Okay, it's fine. Whatever. It's, nobody died. You know, so maybe one, one or two more, yeah. Yeah, one or two more. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a question about context. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, it, this is the first time I've ever been to a poetry reading, so you're stuck with my hundred questions. No, it's great. Here's, um, so it's the, exciting. The whole thing for me is uh, it's something stayed with me from a class in college that I dropped because I hated poetry. Um, I was, I was it's a lot of feelings in here. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I was 20 years old. I mean, let's, yeah. let's call this professor. <laughs> but she said, um, she said, uh, poets don't write poems. I think she was talking about 20th century poets. Uh, don't write poems, they write books. I ignored that, dropped the class. Yeah. 25 years later, here I am. Still wondering about that, and so is that true? No. That, you know, <laughs> that, that she was a poet herself, and she said that you know you have to read the book to get. Some poets write books. Some poets write poems. Yeah. So you don't need the context. It doesn't do anything. I don't know. I mean, it just depends on the book. I mean, we can, you know, it's like, I mean, I, 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 I like poems personally. You know, I'm more, but, but some people like whole book things and you know, book length things. That's a, they're really into that. That's not. I mean, I like poems. I like that vibe you get from like. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're sitting here and we're like, what's gonna happen now? I'm like, I read that one poem and you guys are like, what? Or like, you know, leaning in, leaning out, or whatever, and then it's over. Like, I like that thing. That's I'm into that. That's I'm addicted to that. So I'm not writing books of poems. That's not what I do. But I'm not saying if somebody did that, you know, whatever. It's a big world. But I'm saying, but like, I think that poet. This is an ancient art of like, and it kind of like and we're sort of like entertainers, to be honest. I mean, like, we're, we're performers. You know, and if I don't make you all feel like you need to be hanging on everything I'm saying, it's kind of on me, you know? And, like, I got to do that. And it's not about, you know, and I got to do that with the ancient art of poetry. I got to do that with the, with the things that poetry does. 
I can't do it with ideas. I can't do it with telling a story. I can't tell a story. You know, the story, amazing storytelling. I'm looking at these amazing storytellers right here. It would hook me in. They'd start writing the things. That's how, they, that's how you all do it. But I, I can't do that. That doesn't belong to me. I have to do something else. And I have, that's my art. That's my ancient, ancient art. You know, that's from the beginning of the time that people started using words. And that's what I'm trying to talk about in this book. And either I do it or I don't. You know, so that's, that's, and you all know, you know, those of you who've been to poetry readings, you've been to bad readings. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what can you say? You know, I've given bad readings, and I know what it's like to be on the other end of it, too. You know, so. That seems like an excellent place to stop, <laughs> <Yeah>. don't you think? <laughs> right. That is a good place to stop. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Matthew's a pruder. Thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.